you know, we want to have something more like, I like to think of it as almost like five-year plans. You know, mm. I'm likely to change every five years as a person. Right. So probably I should change my career too so that who I am and how I work stays close in alignment. Yeah. It's not always possible to be exactly in alignment, but we need to be conducting those experiments and sometimes failing uh, as we go along the way. What's going on, my friends? Thank you so much for joining yours truly, Ryan Caligiuri, on this week's episode of Cut the Crap Podcast, where every single week I'm reading a book, condensing it down to its core golden nuggets, bringing the author on the show to have a conversation about the golden nuggets. And I'm here every single week just trying to save you a little bit of time and bring you some information that can spark real change in your life. And if you love this show, then please go online, rate and review the show, whatever platform you're listening on. If you have the capability to rate and review the show, you want to do that. Because I'm giving away $1,000 this quarter to whoever has rated and reviewed the show. By the way, just take a screen capture of that. Send it to podcast at ryancalajuri.com and I'll make sure you get entered into the draw every quarter for a prize. If you've already entered in, you know the deal. You're already in. Moving forward. Also, don't forget to follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. If you're going to connect with me on any of them, go on LinkedIn and Instagram. And definitely connect with me there. All right, my friends. This week, we're talking about something that's really important to me. And I know it's really important to you. This whole idea of trying to find fulfilling work. Far too many of us are in this hamster wheel and work is so repetitive. It's boring. It's not fulfilling. We go in day in, day out, just this J-O-B, just trying to get a paycheck. It was something that somebody very close to me once said and I never forgot it because it's just so demotivating and so, it's just so crappy to go through life like that. But another day, another dollar. Another day, another dollar. Like to go through life just to make a little bit of money, it's not even enough money to make you financially wealthy or, 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 or financially independent, financially free. Just another day, another dollar. You're going in, you're punching your clock, you're in, you're out. That's a really crappy way to go through life. And life is too short to not do stuff that truly gets you excited. And you might be out there right now saying, come on, Ryan, give me a break. We all have to have a job. I got to pay bills and... I don't live to work. No, I work to live. Hey, that's fair. But the really sad reality of that is that you're putting in 40 plus hours every single week into something that you're not really excited about. You don't have to do that. You can change. And I know some of you out there right now, you're probably rolling your eyes at me and saying, come on, Ryan, that might be the case for some people, but that's not the case for me. Now, get rid of that mindset. The mindset sucks. If you have that mindset, guess what? You will never change. Sort of come down hard on you like that on a Monday morning, but it's true. If you have a crappy mindset like that, you will never get out of that rut. It's the difference with the person that says, I can't afford that. Well, I can, I'll never be able to afford that. Yeah, that's beautiful, but I'll never be able to afford that. Guess what? What you just said there is so important. The language you use, the words you use are so important. I'll never be able to afford that. By saying that, it automatically closes you off to any opportunity to afford that. Instead of saying, I'll never afford that, and just closing it off in your mind, say, how can I afford that? If you say, how can I afford that? All of a sudden, your mind starts looking for different things. Your creativity starts to spark. You start to look in different directions for things that you could do to make more money in order to afford that. And the same is true when you're finding fulfilling work. If you say, hey, I'll never be able to find fulfilling work. That's not for me. What do you think is going to happen to you? You're never going to find fulfilling work. So this is such an important topic for me to discuss and obviously get very passionate about it. So this week's episode, we have the author of How to Find Fulfilling Work, The School of Life by Roman Kiznarek. Pretty simple title, How to Find Fulfilling Work. It's my hope that you go through this podcast, this episode, you listen to it, you take some notes and hopefully something in here resonates with you that will help you find fulfilling work. I'm telling you, man, life is too damn short. It's too damn short not to do something that you love. And I'll tell you right now, don't worry about it. It's not like every single day you're going to go in and you're going to be excited. Yeah, you're going to have up days, you're going to have down days. But I'm telling you, you got to have more ups than downs. And so I really hope that this book, this interview, my uh, discussion with Roman can maybe help you get on that right path and maybe provide you with a little stimulus, like I say, every single week, just to spark change in your life. All right, my friends, so enough jibber-jabber from me. Let's cut right into this one. This is How to Find Fulfilling Work, The School of Life by Roman Kiznarek. I'll catch you back here at the end of the episode. Enjoy. 
Roman, how you doing? I'm very well, thanks, Ryan. How are you? Doing very well. So, Roman, uh, like we were talking about earlier, I'm really excited to get you on the show because we had Seth Godin on a couple weeks ago talking about his book, Lynchpin. And that book brought up a whole discussion with listeners saying, yeah, we're unhappy at work and we're doing our best to try and find what we're passionate about, what we love to do. And one of our listeners, one of our loyal listeners, um, sent me your book and said, how to find fulfilling work. You got to get Roman on the show. So I reached out to you and I'm glad you reached back out and get you on here talking about your book, how to find fulfilling work, because there's a lot of people out there who are trying to do that every single day, but they just don't know how. So by going through your book and uh, talking to you, I'm hoping that uh, we can shine some light on this. But um, before we do, maybe give us a quick introduction in terms of uh, who you are and what you do for the audience, for people who don't know you yet. Yeah, so um, my background is as an academic. I used to be a political scientist. I hated it. It drove me crazy. (laughs) Then I became a journalist. I hated that as well. I gave that up. I was a professional gardener and a human rights campaigner. So my own life, I've done lots of different jobs. I've learned what works for me and what doesn't. That's partly the basis on which I wrote my book from that personal experience. But uh, most of the time, actually, now I'm I'm a writer and philosopher, one might say, a kind of mm-hmm. popular philosopher. Um, so I write books like the one we're going to talk about today, How to Find Fulfilling Work. I've written books about empathy. Mm-hmm. I've just written a book on the art of seizing the day called Carpe Diem Regained, mm-hmm. The Vanishing Art of Seizing the Day. And when I'm not writing books, um, I founded a museum called the Empathy Museum, which travels around the world and gives people a chance to step into the shoes of wow. other people. Um, so that's partly what my life is like. And I live in Oxford in England, and I'm Australian. Hmm. Wow. Wonderful. Great story. <laughs> we have a lot to cover off today. So let's get right into this one, Roman. So golden nugget number one, it says that we're dissatisfied when our expectations about work are not met. So To me, this makes sense because expectations in general, when they're not met, there is disappointment overall. But why does this seem to happen so often today in the workplace? Well, I think what's happened is that there's been an extraordinary historical shift around expectations. I mean, if I think of my father, right, he was a refugee from Poland to Australia after the Second World War. Now, he was a very talented guy. He was brilliant in mathematics. He was a great musician. He could speak seven languages. But he didn't really expect that those talents and passions that he had would be embodied in his work. I mean, for him, work was about getting security, a nine-to-five job. He worked for a big company for 50 years, for IBM, in fact. Um, And for him, he pursued his passions and talents outside the workplace. And his expectations were relatively low. Now, take me, his son, A generation later, born in 1970 in my case, my expectations were totally different. I had this idea, probably like you do, that work should be something that is a place of fulfillment where I can use my talents and passions and I can find ways to find meaning. And I think this is, of course, where the core problem lies today, that everyone from tech CEOs to taxi drivers are looking at their working lives and thinking, hey, this isn't really making me happy. This isn't giving me the well-being that I expected. Here I am working 40, 50 hours a week, maybe more. And what am I doing with my life? I'm miserable. Um, And so everybody, I think, feels this kind of question now and then. There's the odd person now and then, maybe someone like a vet um, who just loves their job all of the time. (laughs) But most of us have this gap between what our expectations are and what our real working lives are like. Is there a reason, well, I guess maybe it's a part of that reason just because we have too many choices today, like a friend of the show and former guest of Cut the Crap podcast, Barry Schwartz, he says that the consequences of facing too many options is not feelings of happiness and liberation, but sort of a paralysis and an inability to do anything at all. So is it because that we, we look outside of our job often and we see, wow, there's so many different options out there that it kind of doesn't allow us to appreciate what we have? Is that kind of a part of it? Or is it just that people are not passionate about what they're doing? What is it? I think there are a lot of things going on. I think one of the things that's happened, of course, is the rise of the self-help industry over the last you know, 50 years, roughly, probably ever since Dale Carnegie started writing, <laughs> you know, back in the 1930s, 1940s. Um, and that's contributed to this shift in expectations. And we're asking more and more questions about who we are, 
that comes out of the self-help movement. It comes out of psychoanalysis and Sigmund Freud and stuff like that. But part of the satisfaction is, as Barry Schwartz argues very well in his work on the paradox of choice, which is that we have many more options before us in some ways. I mean, if you were Benjamin Franklin, there weren't that many job options you had when you were a young man. You know, he ended up working as a printer's apprentice. You know, you could have been a baker or a candle maker. But today, if you look online on the jobs pages, you might find a website with 12,000 different jobs. And as Barry Schwartz points out, when we've got all these choices before us, we are so worried about making the wrong choice that we sometimes end up making no decision at all. Mm. And we stay in jobs that are long past their sell-by date. And so I think he's right that that is indeed you know, wow. part of the problem. And of course, the other thing is that most of us, not all of us, are no longer sort of living like we lived in medieval times, just trying to deal with death and pestilence and, <laughs> and getting enough to eat. You know, we've got enough time to sit back and kick back a bit and think, okay, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Do I want to be stuck in a, in a you know, this kind of a boring job all my life? Do I want to be a, a lawyer for 42 years? And there's one other factor which I think is really important, which is that the idea of a job for life no longer exists. You know, no. As I mentioned, my father, he worked for the same company for 51 years. Nice. Now, that no longer is a possibility. The average job lasts three, four years. So we're having to make more and more choices. Mm -hmm. And that raises more and more questions throughout our working lives about what we are going to do. And that can make us pretty anxious. Mm -hmm. Well, that really leads us off into our next golden nugget, golden nugget number two, which says that it's not easy to leave the career path you're on. But if it's not fulfilling, change it. So when I hear that, isn't that easier said than done? Like talk to the people out there who they believe that change is hard. You know, there's some people who are listening to the show right now. And, you know, maybe you're listening to the show right now out there and you're saying, listen, guys, like I really want to find fulfilling work. I want to change. But I don't I, I don't have the luxury of doing that. I have bills to pay. I have kids to put through school. You know, I, I'm in a job right now that I feel trapped in. So Roman, Talk to the people out there who believe that change is hard when you're saying, hey, if it's not fulfilling, just change. I absolutely agree that change is hard. I mean, most people find it difficult and our brains are wired to um, stick with what we know for security rather than change. I mean, there's a very famous experiment done by psychologist Dan Kahneman and Amos Tversky where they asked people to bet on a toss of a coin. And if the coin landed tails, landed down, you'd lose $100. The question is, how much would you have to be offered when the coin landed heads for you mm. to be willing to take the bet? Mm. And if people offered a loss of $100 for tails and a win of $100 for heads, most people wouldn't take the bet. If the loss was 100 for tails and 150 for heads, still most people wouldn't take the bet. Mm. But if the loss was $100 for tails and if it landed heads, you'd win $200 most people would take that bet. Hmm. And the conclusion was that the pain from a loss is about double the pleasure from a gain. Or in other words, we hate losing about twice as much as we like winning. And when it comes to career choice um, and career change, it means we like sticking with what we know. Our brains are wired to stay with what we know. And that's part of what makes change hard. We're worried about what happens if it all goes wrong. Hmm. Um, so then that raises the question of, well, if we feel that, what do we do? Well, if I was going to build a temple uh, in honor of fulfilling work, it would have etched in stone over the front of it, act first, think later, those four words. And let me say something about what I mean by that. Basically, for the last 200 years, when, we've been, when people suggest, well, how do you make decisions in life, the Enlightenment tradition, going back to the 18th century, said what you do is you think first and you act afterwards. In other words, you do lots of planning, you make lists of your strengths and weaknesses, you do lots of job research into different careers, and then you start sending out your resume or your curriculum vitae. Now, that might get you a job, but it's unlikely to be a fulfilling one. Why? Because you haven't tried out these jobs in reality. Mm. We have a lot of false expectations about what it might be like to be a, a journalist or a car mechanic or whatever it happens to be. We're often completely wrong because we haven't done any shadow, shadowing or volunteering or interning. And so what the current research tells us about finding fulfilling work is what you need to do is act first and think afterwards hmm. instead of 
act first and think later. <laughs> now, then you might, your listeners might be thinking, yeah, well, that's all very well to say, well, am I going to just give up my job tomorrow morning and not be able <laughs> to put right. shoes on my children's feet? So what do you do? Well, what you can do is what I think of as branching projects. So let me give you an example from my own life. I once had this job where I was absolutely miserable. I was working as a kind of community worker, but it started off good. I ended up being bored and becoming just like a manager who was just sending emails all the time. So I thought, I want to change this. What I really want to do is start teaching my own classes on the art of living. And uh, I said this to my wife. She said, well, why don't you just go and do it? And I said, well, I can't do it. I mean, I don't know what I teach. I don't even know where I teach it. I don't know if anybody would come to my classes. Anyway, I complained about this for about three months. And then suddenly she turned to me one day and just said, look, why don't you just start teaching your classes in the art of living in our kitchen next Saturday hmm. on the weekend? And there was like a bolt of lightning nice. went into my brain. I thought, I've got to do this. So I sent out some emails to some friends and friends of friends. And that actually two Saturdays later, I had eight people come around to my kitchen. I made them a lasagna. Wow. And I, I taught them a course <laughs> on how to rethink your ideas about love and time. And it was, I didn't know what I was doing. I was like going by the seat of my pants, um, but it was exhilarating and it worked. And then I started doing more and more of these classes in my kitchen. Then I started doing them in public spaces. And that ended up me helping found a global emotional intelligence organization called the School of Life, which now exists in 14 countries. Hmm. But the point, right, <laughs> I'll make the point about with, with this long answer is that when I started doing these classes, I didn't give up my job straight away, my old job. I kept it for about three months because mm. I was doing these experiments on the side. And once I'd built up the confidence to overcome that natural risk aversion that I was talking about with our brains, then I was willing and able to make the leap to doing it full time. Mm. In other words, act first, think later, but do these little experiments on the side, these branching projects. That's one way to do it. What a great piece of advice. And for all you out there in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation, I tell you this all the time. When you are looking to move outside of your job, again, just like you do if you're a product developer, you develop what's called an MVP, your minimal viable product. That's exactly what Roman just suggested there. He tested something out in his own kitchen. It was low budget. He didn't have to go out to a hotel and rent a room and order a continental breakfast and provide this big event. He didn't need to do that. He just took a baby step, a small step to just test out his concept, to see if there was something there, to get some experience, to get in the corridor, so to speak. And it's just those small changes that you can start making on the weekend, you know, after work, you know, after your nine to five, to start changing your life. I truly love that piece of advice. It's excellent. So Golden, Yeah, I think oh, that sorry, one of the keys to it is that it helps build up confidence as well. That's mm. really important. You test the idea and you test your confidence. Mm. Great addition. Absolutely. Absolutely. In Golden Nugget number three, it says that fulfilling work doesn't mean anything about money and status, but making a difference does give you a sense of meaning. So first tell us why money and status are not fulfilling, because I think there's a lot of people out there who believe that with a high paying job, they can fuel a lifestyle that is meaningful. And then once you t uh, go through that, talk to us about making a difference and combining that with enterprise. Yeah, I think money and status are pretty old-fashioned aspirations. I mean, people have sought money in their jobs for 500 years, ever since the Spanish conquistadors came to the Amer Americas in, in search of gold. Um, but what most of the research shows is that when you ask people what gives them satisfaction at work, the highest thing on the list is almost never money. Mm -hmm. It's things like the quality of relationships, it's their sense of autonomy or freedom in their job or the creativity that they have um, or that they're given. Of course, money matters. You know, we need to pay our mortgages mm -hmm. you know, and, and so on. But as a primary driver of what you do, um, it's not likely to be a, a very effective way to mm -hmm. um, fulfillment. Um, but status is slightly different because... The way we are seen by others really does matter to us. Hmm. This is absolutely fundamental to what it means to be human. Very few of us don't care about how we are judged. The question is what we want to be judged for. You know, do you want to be judged for having a high-status job like being a, a top corporate lawyer or a neurosurgeon, or actually, you know, where, where you might be judged as having high status by people you don't know, 
Or is something else important? And I think something else important, which is actually respect. Hmm. So there's two ways to get recognition. One is status. So that's having a job which is recognized publicly as something that's important or uh, something like that. Or respect is slightly different. It's whether you feel like you're treated as a human being. And I think that's very fundamental because what we don't want to feel is like we're just a cog in the machine. We want people to realize that what we do matters or that we're good at our jobs, um, things like that. You know, you imagine care about you know, being good at what you're doing, doing mm. these podcasts and all the other things you do with your yes. life. I care about how people think of me as a writer. I don't, for me, it's not important that a writer is a high or low status job. What matters to me is people think my writing is good, mm. you know, <laughs> and that people treat me with respect. I once had a job as a gardener, professional gardener. Yeah. I learned something very important. Um, I had a professional qualification, and I was gardening, and then people would just walk past me without looking me in the eye. Oh. You know, they wouldn't even talk to me, even though they weren't to know this, that I have a PhD in political <laughs> science and <laughs> whatever, you know, written books and so on. Um, and, but what I didn't realize was how important it was for me to be treated with that kind of respect, right. um, that sense of somebody recognizing me as a human being and looking me in the eye, knowing my name, <laughs> you know, not just seeing me as a measly gardener to walk past some guy mindlessly pulling out the weeds. Um, so that's what I'd say about money and, 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 sta mm. and status. Um, I think other things are more important. Um, the question is then, how do you find those other things and what should those other things mm -hmm. be? Um, I mean, there's a lovely quote attributed to Aristotle, which is, where the needs of the world and my talent and your talents cross, there lies your vocation. Hmm. And there's something very important there, which is one, to do, if you want meaningful work, try and do something that you're good at. Right? <laughs> We're not going to throw that away, that's for sure. But also do something where you feel like you're making a difference for the world, something bigger than yourself. Right? Um, you know, human beings tend not to thrive when they're just pursuing their self-interest. This is you know, the fundamental finding of the last hundred years of psychology, that we are social animals. We're wired for empathy and social cooperation and mutual aid, um, that we like to share our lives with other people. So giving to others is one of the best ways to make us feel good. So then there's the question of, okay, well, how can I be good and use my talents? This is partly why it feels like being social entrepreneurship have exploded in the last mm. 10 years. Um, there's an organization in, in um, London called Escape the City. It was set up by some guys who were investment bankers and management consultants working in London. They were young guys, and they thought, yeah, I mean, I like using my mathematical skills to help my management consultancy, but actually, I don't want to just make you know, rich companies richer or rich people richer. I'd rather use my talents that I've learned doing my MBA or whatever it is to do something that not only makes money, but also has good environmental mm. impact or decreases inequality and so on, that I can put these two things together. And when the idea of social entrepreneurship was invented in the late uh, 1970s by, um, I've forgotten the, guy, the guy's name, and I actually know him, the guy who founded the Ashoka uh, mm. Foundation. Anyway, it'll come back to me. Um, uh, you know, that was a real important turning point. And right. the social entrepreneurship category is sort of growing faster than any other part of the economy, at least in Europe. When it comes down to vocation, I mean, you brought that, that term up, vocation. Uh, let's, let's dig into that one a little bit more deeper. And when you do, maybe tell us a story about Mary Curry. Yeah, I think when a lot of people hope that their vocation is going to appear to them like a vision of the Virgin Mary or something uh, out of nowhere. Oh, my God, I need to open an otter sanctuary or whatever it is. It's just going to occur to you. Well, I'm sorry to say it doesn't normally happen like that. Instead of finding vocations, I like to think that we grow our vocations through right. experiments. Mm -hmm. And Marie Curie, who you mentioned there, one of the world's most famous scientists, she won two Nobel Prizes in chemistry and physics um, you know, uh, in about a century ago. And the thing about Marie Curie is that when she started uh, her career, you know, she wasn't aiming to you know, discover all sorts of new chemical elements and uh, discover the secrets of radiation and win two Nobel Prizes. She, first, she went into medicine. Then she fell into doing some PhD research on weird kinds of metals. 
And then she ended up getting obsessed with this um, idea of, of, of around ra- radium and um, polonium and these other things that she ended up discovering in chemistry. But it was an experimental process for her, the way she discovered her vocation. Um, she grew it over time. She didn't always enjoy her dot job either. I mean, she wasn't jumping for joy all the time, <laughs> but it was meaningful because she was doing something which psychologists sometimes call have, has a transcendent cause, mm. it's something you believe in that goes beyond yourself. Um, and I think she's a very good model. And what it tells us is something really important, which is that we need to try and see our careers as places and spaces for experiments. Mm. You know, when you're 16, you might decide what you want to do, but we are really terrible judges of our future selves. Yes. You know, we're not only bad judges of what careers might be actually like in reality, but we change through time. You know, I have children now. My ideas about what a a good career is has shifted because of that. Um, And so we need to be willing to change and to be flexible. We don't want to have something like, you know, we want to have something more like, I like to think of it as almost like five-year plans. You know, I'm likely to change every five years as a person. So probably I should change my career too, so that, who I am and how I work stays close in alignment. Yeah. It's not always possible to be exactly in alignment, but we need to be conducting those experiments and sometimes failing mm-hmm. uh, as we go along the way. But failures can be difficult, of course, I admit that, and sometimes it can be a disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think when people think about their vocation or, or what ignites them, what they really want to do, the challenge there is that it doesn't become apparent to them right away. And when it doesn't become apparent to them right away, they kind of just shut their brain off. And it's like, well, I tried something or I don't really know what what I want to do out there. And this idea of finding your vocation, it it takes time. It takes time to develop and it takes a lot of research and experimentation, as you say. Absolutely. And in fact, for the research for my book, I spoke to this one woman who was Belgian, actually. And she was in this really boring administrative sort of clerk kind of job Um, and she decided she wanted more from her life so for her 30th birthday she gave herself an unusual present which was to spend the whole year trying out 30 different jobs (laughs) so she held on to her administration job part-time just to make ends meet pay the rent Um, but the rest of the time she volunteered in all sorts of things she followed a member of the European Parliament for a week. She was the manager of a cat hotel, uh, which probably appeals to you if it was a dog hotel, because I know you're a dog fan. Um, (laughs) She she shadowed someone in the advertising industry. Uh, She did all sorts of jobs, some very high-powered, some very unpowered. And the point, I think, for her was that she was totally surprised by what she enjoyed and what she didn't. In fact, weirdly, she really enjoyed the advertising industry. She'd never have guessed it. And that goes back to this idea that we are bad judges about things. I mean, I used to teach these classes at the School of Life in London, this institution I mentioned earlier, about how to find fulfilling work. I taught them for many, many years. And one of the most amazing things was that there'd be people in the room, one of them might be, say, a a nurse or a taxi driver, another one might be a top TV producer. And the nurses and taxi drivers couldn't believe that the top TV producer was absolutely miserable in their job, you know, and felt that they were, they were just a pawn in somebody else's game, that, that they were stressed and overworked, it wasn't worth it, or they were completely uncreative. So, you know, actually one of the best ways to find fulfilling work is actually to talk to people who are different from you. Hmm. I have, you know, for example, if a lawyer comes to me and say, hey, I don't like being a lawyer, I don't, I, but I don't know how to change, I feel stuck. What I normally say, which shocks them a bit, is I say, stop spending time with any other lawyers. Mm. <laughs> Go and spend time with people who are in the circus, you know, or, or at least something a bit different. Right. Because it changes you when you've got different kinds of people mm-hmm. around you. Um, that's, it's, you know, our peers um, and our friends and families are such a big influence mm-hmm. on us. I constantly feel I've got my dad looking over my shoulder, <laughs> yeah. Uh, at my career and thinking, am I wasting my life? Hmm. You know, am I letting him down given all the opportunities he gave me as a refugee and, and so on. Um, but it's healthy, I think, to change your peer group um, and, and see how other people are thinking and living. You realize that your values, you know, it's classic things about money. You know, you Hmm. realize that 
you know, people live on less money or they don't care about it as much. Maybe they care about it more and they're mm -hmm. happy, but maybe they're not. That's right. You know, but you need to challenge your own prejudices that we all have. That's right. Yeah, this diversity of thinking is, is critical and perspective is so critical, especially if you're in a place in life right now where you feel like you're in a little bit of a rut and things aren't going well, your career is not going well. I always believe that and in that you need to change up who you hang out with. You need to go and get some more worldly experiences, read different books. Just change is important. Take a different path to work for Crenola. It doesn't matter how small it is, but small amounts of change and introducing yourself to that um, can open you up to new perspectives, new approaches. Um, diversity of thinking is a very powerful thing. In Golden Nugget number four, we talk about this idea of following your passion and finding what's called your flow experiences. And if you find your passion and find your flow experiences, this will make you happy. But for some reason, I, I personally, I never really liked the term passion because I, maybe I'm wrong and maybe you can give me a better definition of what passion is, but I've never had a very good definition of what passion is. It's such a loaded term and it means something different to everybody. Um, so help everyone in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation and myself understand what you mean first by finding your passion. And then talk to us about flow experiences. Yeah, I agree with you. The word passion isn't a particularly great word because when you think about what you ideally want to express in your life and in your work, it could be a talent that you have, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's you're a fine athlete or a pianist or something like that. It could be a passion in the sense of just something that absolutely makes you get up in the morning, something you absolutely care about. For Marie Curie, it was her scientific research. For somebody else, it could be just keeping the family business alive. I mean, whatever it is. And these passions that we have um, are based on our personal experiences. So, in fact, probably rather than using that word passion, uh, a, a, a less precise but probably better term would be that the thing that you know gets you out of bed in the morning. Right. You know, it, it could be a hobby or something like that, but mm -hmm. probably it's something that you know, you feel that you can make some contribution to in mm -hmm. some way. Um, but then there's this question of flow experience. So, as you probably know, the concept of flow goes back to the 1970s to the Hungarian-American psychologist Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, whose um, second name is even harder to pronounce and spell <laughs> than mine. Um, and he did these very famous studies in the 1970s of people like basketball players, rock climbers, neurosurgeons and so on and what he discovered was that they were at their happiest most satisfied their their moment of optimal experience as he called it when they were totally immersed in what they were doing they were in a state of what he called flow there was no they were utterly immersed in the present they didn't think about the future or the past they were as we say with athletes in the zone um, and What's really fascinating, I think, about his research, I mean, it sounds really obvious to us now, but I think it was, it's very path-breaking and important because he said that these people were in, in a position between boredom and, and anxiety. In other words, they weren't doing something that was so easy that, that made them bored. They weren't doing something so difficult that made them anxious. They were doing something that was a little bit out of their comfort zone. It was challenging and creative, but it brought them into the present moment. So I think that one way to judge your work is to have a look at, well, how often am I in these flow states? I advise people to keep, as an experiment for one month, a flow diary, mm. where just at the end of each day, just jot down on a piece of paper, just for a minute, when were you in flow? Was it when you were giving a presentation at work, or in fact, on Sunday, when you were cooking a seven-course meal for your 12 crazy cousins? <laughs> you know, that'll give you a clue about what are those kinds of things that bring you into that present moment, that flow state. Um, and I think it's really fundamental because it's not always possible to change our work, um, to shift careers. It isn't always easy, but sometimes you can try and get more of that flow state in your work. Mm. You know, for, you know, oddly enough, it might be by trying to challenge yourself more, um, by pushing yourself harder, not necessarily changing careers, but raising your game in some ways, because that will absorb you more. You know, it'll absorb your mind and your energy more, and actually you'll feel happier at the end of it. I mean, I have this thing with writing books all the time. Sometimes I like easy days where I'm just reading other people's work and doing research. <laughs> and I dread sometimes the days where I open the screen and I'm starting to write a new chapter of a book, and it is absolutely daunting. But I get in my state of flow when I'm putting words onto the page right. or any other time. It's incredibly hard. 
In fact, um, I've got a quote on my wall. I'm just going to read out to you now. Here sure. I am in Oxford, England. It's from Ernest Hemingway. It says, there is nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. <laughs> now, that doesn't sound like a lot of, lot of fun, right? But it's the sitting down at the typewriter which puts me in flow, or at the keyboard in my case. Um, so I think we can all try and, in a way, become detectives of our flow experience. See when you get into the zone and see if you can do a little bit more of it. Oh, yeah. I really, really like that one. We are talking about earlier on the show about discovery and, and, and how it takes time to find your vocation. You have to explore. You have to search. You have to try things. You have to test things out. And then you drop this this awesome golden nugget on us about trying to find our flow experiences and, you know, keep a flow journal. That, to me, is such a tangible takeaway for all of you out there in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation. If you're out there trying to figure out what, what am I, what am I, what am I, can I get excited about? What gets me up in the morning and how do I start my day with enthusiasm? You might not be looking in the right directions. If you start with maybe this flow journal and you start capturing and you start being becoming aware of when you get yourself into a flow state, that by itself might be a hint to you to say, maybe explore that a little bit more deeper and figure out what you can do with that to turn into an enterprise or what you can do with that to, um, to continue doing that and, and make that a part of your life, make that your career. I think that's great advice. And I think a lot of people who do end up finding their vocation, they naturally do that. But maybe that doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. And so you have to put in place these measures, these checks and balances to actually um, keep track of it and become aware of it. I really love that. That's an awesome takeaway, Roman. Thank you for that. Our next golden nugget, golden nugget number five. It says that if you're looking for fulfilling work, you should seek freedom. So the problem today is that most people, they're trapped in this hamster wheel that it's just so damn repetitive day in and day out. So people don't feel freedom. So talk to us about this idea of seeking freedom. How do we do that? Yes. Yeah, so I think that freedom is an underrated element of what we need in our work. Um, that human beings really thrive on having a sense of autonomy. If you feel trapped, if you feel like you're doing something that you haven't chosen to do, ultimately this diminishes us and erodes us over time and if you feel like you're just a, just a cog in the machine and so on. So then the question is, how can we have that sense of freedom, that sense of agent, the sense that I am the author of my own life, not someone else writing my story for me? Well, broadly, I think there are two things we can do. Um, one is to try and find freedom in our existing work. Okay, now the, the, the biggest way to do that probably is to go freelance and to stop working for a big company and work for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is an incredibly difficult thing to do <laughs> because of all the secure insecurities that it brings along. Um, you know, I remember when I went freelance, well, suddenly I didn't have that check coming in at the end of the month. That's right. Um, and that can be a scary thing. Now, one of the curious things about people who start working for themselves is that once they do it, they almost never want to go back to working for a big company again. Um, Even though they have to deal with insecurity of income, even though they might be working longer hours than they ever did running their beach cafe or whatever whatever it happens to be (laughs) rather than working as an accountant, they almost never want to go back because that sense of freedom and autonomy is so important to us. Um, And I think something else is really interesting here is that well, another way to express freedom is that I like the idea of aspiring to be a wide achiever rather than a high achiever. Hmm. Now, the, the old idea of, you know, if you're a sort of smart or intelligent person, your career's advisors and friends and family probably say you should become a specialist in right. something. Okay, you should become an aeronautical engineer or an <laughs> or orth- orthodontist or whatever it happens <laughs> to be. Um, but... There is another, that kind of thing, of course, can be fulfilling. But we all know, I think, that we are many people. There are many petals for oursel- of ourselves that ideally our working lives would help us unfold. Think of someone like Leonardo da Vinci. In any one week, he would have been painting portraits for an artistic patron and then doing some engineering uh, experiments and then also doing some anatomy studies on the weekend. Uh, He was always doing many different things. He's the classic wide achiever, the Renaissance generalist. Hmm. And that, I think, so 
something that more and more people are doing today, partly as a way of expressing their freedom and their many sides, that you might work three days a week as an accountant and two days a week as a wedding photographer or something like that. And in fact, it's quite a smart thing to do in an age of downsizing and outsourcing and so on, where we don't have secure jobs. If you've got two or three on the go at the same time, well, if one of them dries up, well, you've got a kind of insurance policy, you've still got something uh, else that's going. So I like the idea of trying to asking yourself, you know, if I were a wide achiever, uh, what would I do to try and embody that? Right. Or the different kinds of por- the portfolio of careers that I might try and pursue, hmm. different things at the same time. Um, but I think there's a third approach to freedom, broadly, which is to give up on the idea of finding fulfilling work and have a fulfilling life instead. Hmm. So hmm. let me just say something about that. I'm realistic about these things. I know that sometimes it isn't possible to change careers. It isn't possible to find something that is really meaningful or enjoyable. Sometimes you've just got to do your shift as a forklift truck driver, and there's not much you can do. But then, what can you do? You can try and find your freedom and your meaning, fulfillment outside your daily work. And this is a tried and tested approach to the art of living. The great American poet Wallace Stevens you know, was by day an insurance company executive, and he wrote his prize-winning poems in the morning, at night, and on the weekends. He didn't want his poetry destroyed by career and money and so on. In fact, when he won the Pulitzer Prize, he was offered a permanent position at Harvard where he could just write his poetry full-time. He turned it down. He kept on his job in the insurance <laughs> industry, kept it going. He wanted to keep these things separate. Um, And I can totally understand that that's quite a useful way to go. But if you really want to do that and maximize that freedom, well, one of the keys to it is to master the art of simple living. You know, the the simpler you live and the less money you need to live on, the less time you need to spend on that job that is really just paying the bills um, and the more time you have left for the stuff that you really care about. I mean, famously, the great 19th century American uh, writer, Henry David Thoreau, who in the 1840s went off to live in a little cabin in Western Massachusetts in Concord, which he wrote about in his famous book, Walden, he was really good at simple living. And in fact, when he stopped living in his cabin, he worked out that by just working as a surveyor for about two months a year, he could earn enough to live on for the whole year. And he basically took the rest of the year off. Uh, But that's because he lived on very little money. He could Mm -hmm. make his own furniture and all that kind of stuff. He built his own house. And I think we can find our own ways to do that as well. And that's something that I've tried to do a lot. I try and live not on the absolute minimum possible, um, but I'm very conscious of trying to keep down my living expenses so I have more freedom. Hmm. Freedom is such an important aspect of of life. And I think that's maybe something we don't think about. We don't think about freedom. And that's why we wanted to bring it up here because it's such an important point that we're not thinking about. And, you know, when you think about making money and what have you, when you talk to people about what they value more, if they value autonomy versus more money, more often than not, people who have a lot of experience and who have been there and done that will always take freedom, will always take autonomy over having more money. Um, I, that's, I'm one of those people, right? I love to have my freedom. And again, it comes down to exploration. Um, I did a number of things in my career, and I still do a number of things in my career, different things all the time to explore different avenues, right? Podcasting, writing, uh, speaking, consulting, coaching, right? Different industries. I'm always exploring, trying to find something new, something that, that, um, uh, that just gives me options as well. And it keeps my work very interesting. And having the freedom to change up what I do is very empowering. And it keeps me excited. So this kind of leads us now to our last golden nugget for the show here. And golden nugget number six says that when we're trying to find fulfilling work, well, we kind of already know what fulfilling work is. is This whole podcast has been helping to shape what that is. And we're trying to find it. Golden nugget number six says that to find fulfilling work, we need to overcome this big bad thing called fear. So talk to us about fear and how do we overcome fear when we start to make these changes and we start to look for fulfilling work in our lives because I tell you right now I'm sure there's a lot of people out there listening right now who are they're gung-ho they want to go up and they want to change but then all of a sudden oh they wake up tomorrow and they don't do anything (laughs) why fear yeah fear um, holds us all back we're all afraid of making mistakes we're afraid of making the wrong choices I mean I hope that some of the nuggets we've talked about already like acting first and thinking later are ways to overcome fear but I think there's ultimately one way to deal with fear 
um, which might sound a bit extreme, and it's this. It's to think about death, mm. <laughs> okay? Nice. Um, now, let me tell you what I mean. <laughs> you know, what does Steve Jobs do every morning, apparently? He said he looked himself in the mirror uh, and said, look, if this were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I'm about to do today? Okay, now, what he was trying to do there was get a sense of his own mortality and recognize that, look, we're not around here forever. So am I going to stay in something that I don't enjoy? Um, to, or am I going to go off and do something meaningful, even though I might be afraid of it? But I've only got this one life. He was there, Job, Steve Jobs was invoking there something that, an idea that goes back to the ancient Roman Stoic philosophers, this idea of living every day as if it were your last. Mm. Now, I don't necessarily advocate that. I mean, I think what Steve Jobs was saying, look, he wasn't saying don't live every day as if you last, last in the sense of just go and spend all your money and um, <laughs> have right. affairs and so on. <laughs> it was more a check on his values and passions. Am I mm -hmm. doing what is my work sort of aligned with who I am? Um, but I think you can think about something I think of, another way of thinking about death. You know, I, I advocate what I think was a daily death pause <laughs> to spend just three minutes a day at the end of the day thinking about your own mortality. I don't mean think about yourself dead in the box of the coffin. <laughs> I mean, try and project yourself to the end of your life and look back and think, how can I live my life so I don't look on it with regret? Mm. Um, now, this can help overcome fears. One of my favorite thought experiments is what I call the dinner party of the afterlife. Mm. Okay, so imagine, Ryan, that you're dead, right? Mm -hmm. And you, <laughs> you, you go up into the afterlife, you're invited to a dinner party, and there in the room are all the other yous who you could have been oh, wow. if you had made different choices. So there's the you who actually followed your dream of becoming a vet and studied really hard and it happened. There's a you who didn't actually bother to make your relationship work and your marriage fell apart. There's the you who became an alcoholic and never recovered. There's the you who nearly died in a car accident hmm. and radically changed their life afterwards as a result. Right? Wow. And you can look around at these different alternative selves and ask yourselves, well, are there these other me's who I'd rather be or possibly become? Hmm. You know, and I think this kind of thought experiment that we can all do is a way of putting our lives in that big perspective. And yes, we have fears. Of course we have fears. But I think the greatest fear I have is the fear of looking back on my life at the end and thinking that I hadn't done what I really wanted to do, living with that sense of regret. Mm. And so for me, the way to avoid that sense of regret and to overcome small fears and big fears alike is to keep remembering that I'm not always going to be around Life is short. Car pay the diem. Seize the day, and um, try to make your life extraordinary. Oh, I love it! What a great note to end on. And, and just just to finish up here really quickly, I've I've told this story before on the podcast, but people always ask me like, Brad, how are you always so chipper and happy? Why are you always looking at life with rosy colored glasses on? And it's these thought experiments that you have to put in place, and you have to keep them top of mind, and you have to execute on them every once in a while. And this thought experiment in particular, I am going to use, and I'm going to remind each and every single one of you on the podcast of frequently now. Because one of the thought experiments that I run is, you know, you go through the day, you kind of, the day beats you up, you're having a tough time, and you're sitting in your car, perhaps, or, you know, on, on, on the bus, or the subway, or whatever it is, and you're just not feeling good about yourself. Then all of a sudden, I have this morbid thought. I'm like, you know what? What if I got into a car accident? Or what if this subway just went off the rails all of a sudden, and I died right now? I would want to enjoy my last minutes of life here. So you know what? I'm putting the music on my ears, and I'm singing, man. Not, not singing out loud, but in my head, I'm singing. I'm enjoying myself. If I'm in my car alone, I'm singing out loud. I don't care what people around me are saying, because I want to extract as much as possible out of that moment. And all of a sudden, just by that executing that little thought experiment, all of a sudden, everything changes for me. I feel better. You know, I'm, I'm sitting up straighter. I'm breathing deeper. My eyes are wider. All of a sudden, whatever got me down earlier, I've forgotten about because of these little thought experiments that you can employ throughout your day to keep you focused, to erase the fear, to kind of quiet the lizard brain. And this thought experiment by itself, Roman, I absolutely loved it. How to find fulfilling work. Roman, thank you so much for coming on the show. Again, this is such a, an important topic that we need to continuously remind ourselves of. And I really hope that there's a lot of you out there in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation who will listen to this a couple times over and take a lot of the stuff that Roman shared with us today and, and put it into practice in your life. Uh, Roman, for anyone who wants to follow you or pick up any of your books or connect with you online, how can they go about doing that? 
they can go to my website. That's R-O-M-A-N-K-R-Z-N-A-R-I-C, romankrasnarik.com, or use that Roman Krasnarik for Twitter as well, and you can reach me that way. And Ryan, it's been a real privilege and pleasure talking to you. Really enjoyed myself. All right, my friends, there we have it. That is How to Find Fulfilling Work, The School of Life by Roman Kiznarik. I really hope that there was something in this episode that created a spark for you. I really do. Because there's some of you out there right now in the gym or on the subway, in the car ride, uh, in the car ride to work or coming from work, whatever it is, whatever it is you're doing, there's some of you out there that are just saying, you know, there's got to be more to life than this crappy job I'm in. And yeah, there is. There truly is. But you got to start thinking that way. And if you don't have the right people in your life who are going to help drive that change, who are going to help to motivate you, inspire you, then hell, send me a freaking email for crying out loud. Send me an email. There's so many of you out there who reach out to me on LinkedIn, on Instagram, through email. My email's ryan.calajuri.me.com. Reach out to me. Send me an email. If you're having a tough time, I have no problem getting on the phone with you. I'm here to serve you. That's what I'm here to do every single week on the podcast. I'm not here just to put out a show. I'm here to really change people's lives. And I'm not a motivational speaker. I, I hate the term motivational speaker. I'm just a very excited person. Somebody who's very passionate. Somebody who's very aggressive. Somebody who likes to learn. And I guess that motivates people. And if that's what you need to light a spark under your ass, then please... Give me a call. Let me hear what you're dealing with. Let me hear the troubles you, you have. And I'd be more than happy to talk you through things. In any case, my friends, you know how this goes. If you love this episode, if you like this episode, if you like my energy, if whatever it is from the podcast you like, then please take a minute. Go online, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Rate and review the show. When you do that, take a screen capture of it, send it to podcast at ryankellajury.com, and I'll make you get entered in the draw this quarter for $1,000 cash. Very simple, very simple. Also, please don't forget to connect with me. LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, I'm all over the place. Connect with me and uh, reach out and just say hi and tell me you found me through the podcast. All right, my friends, that is a wrap for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week to Cut the Crap Podcast, and I will be back here next week when I have a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, an interview with an author. And of course, every single week I'm here just trying to save you a little bit of time and bring you some information that can spark real change in your life. Have a fantastic, productive week, everybody. Love you guys. Work harder on yourself than you do on your job. Work harder on yourself than you do on your business. See if you can find some ways to multiply your value to the marketplace. And he said, your income will immediately start to change. Up until then, I was hoping that the economy would change. I was hoping that my company would change. I was hoping that my paycheck would change. I was hoping that circumstances outside would change. And then here's what I found out. It isn't going to change. So then my question was, if it isn't going to change, how will my life ever change? And here's what my teacher taught me. When you change, when you change, everything will change for you. When you get better, everything will get better for you. And that's where I picked up that phrase, for things to change, you've got to change. You don't have to change the marketplace. You don't have to change the marketing plan. You don't have to change the economy. You don't have to change countries. You don't have to change circumstances out there. All you've got to do is look within and see if you can change yourself for the better. And as you change, things will start to change for you.